Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary Port St. Lucie. Let's join lead pastor Mike Wiggins with the message, I Saw Him. Well, as we read through the Old Testament, we see that various prophets had these encounters with God. And so when these men saw the Lord, it had an absolute dramatic effect upon them. And so you don't have to turn there, but in Isaiah chapter 6, we read, we, we read that Isaiah saw the Lord, and that description goes like this. Isaiah said, the Lord was sitting on a lofty throne, and I want you to picture this in your mind, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Attending him were mighty seraphim, each having six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they flew. And they were calling out to each other, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The word host literally means heavenly armies. The whole earth is filled with your glory. And so when Isaiah had his encounter with Almighty God, he was struck with how holy God is and how sinful and how depraved he was. And he cried out, and check out his response when Isaiah saw the Lord. He said, it is all over. I am what? Doomed. Some of your translations say, I'm undone. I'm doomed, for I am a sinful man. I have filthy lips, and I live among people with filthy lips. Yet I have seen the King, the Lord of heaven's armies. And so having a genuine encounter with God absolutely, dramatically impacted Isaiah, as it did later in the Old Testament with Ezekiel. In Ezekiel 1, we read that Ezekiel saw the Lord. And he described his encounter like this. He said, on this throne high above was a figure whose appearance resembled a man. And from what appeared to be his waist up, he looked like a gleaming amber flickering like a fire. And from his waist down, he looked like a burning flame shining with splendor. And all around him was a glowing halo like a rainbow shining in the clouds on a rainy day. And so when Ezekiel had his encounter with God, I want you to check out how he responded. He said, when I saw it, I fell face down on the ground. And so when Isaiah had a genuine encounter with God, when Ezekiel had a genuine encounter with God. And later on in your scriptures, when Daniel had a genuine encounter with God, in Daniel chapter 10, Daniel described his encounter like this. He said, I looked up and I saw a man dressed in linen clothing with a belt of pure gold around his waist. His body looked like a precious gem. His face flashed like lightning and his eyes flamed like torches. His arms and his feet shone like polished bronze, and his voice roared like a vast multitude of people. 
So when Daniel had this encounter uh, with the Lord, this genuine encounter, check out how Daniel now responded. He said, my strength left me, my face grew deathly pale, and I felt very weak. When I heard the sound of his voice, I fainted and lie there with my face to the ground. Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, these guys had genuine encounters with the Lord in the Old Testament. And when they did, they were awestruck. They were amazed. They were fearful. They were undone. They felt doomed. And the reason they felt doomed is because they realized that they were fallen, sinful men, and they realized how holy and eternal and awesome God is. And they fell at his feet. Now, there are some in our day who claim to have had an encounter with God, but their stories cause us to question their authenticity. John MacArthur talks about this in one of his messages, describing, I think he was describing a televangelist, I don't remember, it was a long time ago, but he was describing, John MacArthur was describing this man and how he says he has encounters with Jesus. And in his message, MacArthur says, and I quote, one man said that Jesus comes into his bathroom and puts his arm around him while he's shaving. I thought, do you keep shaving when that happens? If you can keep shaving, that isn't Jesus. Because when you have an encounter with the true God, if the true God came into your bathroom while you were shaving, you would fall to the floor so hard, you would kill yourself. You see, when people have a genuine encounter with the Lord, it has a dramatic effect upon them. Quite frankly, I'm tired of this attitude in our me generation that we think that God owes us something, that we think that the big man upstairs has some splaining to do because we had such a hard life. Wah, wah, you have no clue who the true God is because when you encounter the true God, you will fall down on your face and you will feel absolutely undone. And having a genuine encounter with the Lord had a dramatic effect on Isaiah, on Ezekiel, and Daniel in the Old Testament. And having a genuine encounter with the Lord had a dramatic effect on John in the New Testament. And so in our passage today, John is gonna write about his experience with Jesus on an island called Patmos. And in a little while, we're gonna see how this encounter that John had with Jesus absolutely changed his life. And so before we get to that experience that John had with the Lord, we need to cover these verses that lead up to that dramatic moment. So check out now, we're gonna to start today in verse nine. And those of you who've been around for a long time, uh, we're starting in verse 9 because last week we stopped at what verse? Okay, so that's what we do at Calvary. And so I, John, your brother. Okay, he's writing to the seven churches in, in Asia Minor there. Uh, many people believe that John, in this point of his life, is in his 80s. He's the pastor at Ephesus, or at least he was. We'll find out what happened to him. And he's overseeing these seven churches, kind of like a bishop. And he's talking to these brothers and sisters in Asia Minor. I, John, your brother, and partner in the tribulation. 
Now, it's not talking about the future seven-year tribulation, which we mentioned last week. The word tribulation there is just referring to the persecution, the suffering that Christians were encountering there at the end of the first century. So I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom, by the way, when you are genuinely born again, the kingdom of God comes within you, and then one day, what's inside of you will be revealed and made visible to the whole world at the second coming. And so I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom, and the, notice this, I'll come back to it, patient endurance that are in who? It's the only way you're ever gonna be patient. (laughs) Connect with Jesus. The patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus, okay? And so John was on Patmos. Today, the island of Patmos is a beautiful place to vacation there in the southern end of the Aegean Sea. The island is about 10 miles long, six miles wide. It's located um, just about 40 miles uh, just off the coast of Asia Minor in the first century, modern-day Turkey there. Uh, You can see it's um, just southwest of Ephesus, and you see the location of the seven churches that we're gonna study in chapters two and three, uh, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And so for many years, Christians have made these pilgrimages to the island of Patmos, this Greek island, and there's several monasteries there that have been dedicated to the apostle John, and so supposedly you can go to the actual cave where he received the revelation. I wouldn't go that far, uh, but definitely it was the same island. And so when John was on the island of Patmos, he wasn't there on vacation in the first century. He was there doing hard labor as a criminal, an accused criminal. So at the end of the first century, the Roman Empire made the island of Patmos, this rocky, barren, volcanic island, a penal colony, and they would send common criminals there to do hard labor, usually in the mines. And so early church fathers, as they, we study their writings, uh, Eusebius, Clement of Alexandria, and Irenaeus, they tell us in their writings that the current Caesar of the day, <clears throat> one of the most vicious ever, like Nero, was... Um, before him, but Domitian was the Caesar of the day, and these early church fathers tell us that it was Caesar Domitian who exiled John to the island of Patmos in AD 95, and so that's why um, scholars believe that this book that we're going to study for so long here uh, was written in AD 95, and by the way, Domitian died historically in AD 96, and Uh, tradition tells us, not the Bible, but tradition tells us that John was released and went back to Ephesus. So why was he incarcerated for about 18 months on the island of Patmos? He told us at the end of verse nine, check it out. On account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And so by the end of the first century, Christianity was deemed an illegal um, religion in the Roman Empire. Did you know that Christians were considered atheists? In the Roman Empire, they were considered atheists because they denied the Greek and Roman gods, and they worshiped some unseen god. And so the, 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 the Roman Empire said, those Christians are atheists. It's crazy um, that they would think that way, but they were you know, godly because they had all these gods and these images that they b- bowed down to. 
And so Christianity was illegal, and so the Romans persecuted Christians, and they persecuted especially the leaders of the churches, like John, um, there in AD 95. According to uh, Victorinus, who was a bishop from, from the third century, John had to work in the mines, and according to other reliable sources, he had to sleep in a cave. And so yet, in, in spite of all these difficult conditions, remember, this is an elderly man, 80, 95. He was at least in his 80s. Some people say he was in his 90s. This elderly man, even though he's working hard labor and even though he's sleeping in a cave, did you notice in verse nine that he patiently endured? Did you see that? I had you, I think I had you underline it or take close note of it. Look again in verse nine. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation, the kingdom, and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. Here's your next point if you're taking notes. Here's where the message gets practical, by the way. As we spend time with Jesus, he enables us to persevere through difficult times with what? Patience. How different so many 21st century Christians are from first century Christians like John. How different, how vastly different. We have a hard time being patient you know, when someone cuts us off in traffic, when our kids misbehave, right? When we have to stand in line too long at Walmart. By the way, I wrote uh, the rough draft of this message, I think on Wednesday and Thursday, my wife and I were in Walmart and we got stuck in the line. And some lady was there trying to make payment and her card wasn't working and we're waiting and waiting and waiting. And I, I thought to myself, I, start, I felt the, you guys ever feel the impatience rising? I felt it rising and I said, I stopped myself and I said, I just wrote about this yesterday and I cannot blow it here. So I smiled real big. I said, come on, honey, let's go to the next lane here. And so how different, right, 21st century Christians are compared to first century Christians like John who experienced so much suffering for the Lord. And so John patiently endured, again, while he worked in the mines and while he slept in a cave. I can hear John singing down in the coal mines, you know, just singing to the Lord. And the Roman guard there, you know, and by the way, his history tells us that he was treated with contempt and brutality, this old elderly man. And I can see him responding to that contempt and that, that viciousness from a Roman soldier with kindness and love. How did John get so patient? Here's how he did it in verse nine. He patiently endured, did you see it? With patient endurance that is in Jesus Christ. Here's how John patiently endured. While he was on Patmos, he spent a lot of time on that barren island with Jesus. Day after day, week after week, month after month. Scholars believe he was there for 18 months. He was connecting with the Lord. And ladies and gentlemen, again, this is where the message gets practical because we're not here just for head knowledge. We want to, we want to implement this stuff in, into our lives so we can have better relationships during the week, right? 
And so when we choose and we dedicate ourselves and we're disciplined to spend daily quality time with Jesus, guess what happens? He changes us from the inside out and we all of a sudden become more patient. You know, as we spend day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, for some of us decades after decades in the word of God on a daily basis and, and at the feet of Jesus Christ, worshiping him and talking to him, and, and what happens is he begins to, to change us and help us to patiently endure the small little trials of life, the small little, I'm, I don't wanna even call them trials, the small things in life, you know, like standing too long in the line at Walmart, or when our kids are screaming or someone cuts us off in traffic, we find because the Lord is changing us that we can patiently endure through those small things, but more important, when the storms come, how many of you guys know storms are coming? When the storms come, when the real serious trials of life hit, it's only those men, those women, those teenagers, those boys and girls who are connecting with Jesus like John did on the island of Patmos who are being changed from the inside out. It's only those people who can patiently endure through those serious trials of life. And so I wanna challenge you again. I do it almost every week. If you haven't made that commitment, make that commitment starting tomorrow, daily time with the Lord, one-on-one, make that appointment. Don't let anything, you say, I'm a mom and I have little kids and I'm too busy. That's a cop-out. That's an excuse. Just call it like it is. It's an excuse. You can get up earlier than your kids get up and sit at the feet of Jesus Christ and he'll give you the patience to deal with all those rugrats when they do wake up. I saw my wife do it for years and years and years. Oh, but you don't understand the career I have, pastor. I'm working 60, 70, 80. It's a cop-out, it's an excuse. Let me ask you something. What is the focus and the goal of your life? Is it your career or is it Jesus Christ? Is it being a lifelong follower of Christ or is it making a name for yourself or making a few bucks? There's nothing wrong with careers. There's nothing wrong with being a mom. There's nothing wrong with any of that. But listen, that's secondary to our one goal of being a lifelong follower of Jesus Christ. That's the goal. And so make that commitment starting tomorrow to spend time at Jesus' feet and allow allow him to change you because here's what's gonna happen. As you're at his feet in the morning or at night or whenever you choose to do it, he fills you with with his spirit. And when he fills you with his spirit, all of a sudden now, you begin to produce the fruit of the spirit. Listen, love, joy, peace, what? Patience or long-suffering, King James Version. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, self-control. You can't get any of those things at some seminar. You get that by being at the feet of Jesus and being filled with the Spirit of God. Like John, and so in verse 10, he says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. So Sunday, he's worshiping the Lord. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. He probably jumped out of his skin, (laughs) saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And so this powerful voice, again, it had to have startled John. He's there having his quiet time on Sunday on Patmos, 
Hopefully there's no work going on in the mines, who knows? But he's there on the Lord's day and he hears this loud voice like a trumpet, right? And it startles him. And now what he hears is gonna turn to sight because he begins to turn around. And look at verse 12. I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. Now, before we get into the description of the glorified Christ, what are the seven golden lampstands? If you remember from two weeks ago, Understanding Revelation, the best way to translate, interpret, better word, best, the best way to interpret the symbols in Revelation, you interpret the Bible by using the what? Bible. That was good. That was a lot of you who said that. You don't just make up whatever you want. Oh, I think the seven gold lampstands are whoop, and I think it's whoop, and then all of a sudden you got all these whoops all around the circle, and it's all heresy. You don't have that right to choose whatever you, however you want to interpret the Bible. That's how cults begin. So what are the seven golden lampstands? Look at the last few ver- uh, words in, of chapter one. It's defined for you right there in the Bible. And the seven lampstands are the seven what? There it is. So the seven golden lampstands were symbolic of the seven churches that we're gonna study in chapters two and three. Does this, does this make sense to you guys? Okay, look at verse 13 now. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. It makes us think of Daniel 7.13, by the way. Clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire and his feet like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. His voice was like the roar of many waters, and in his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face, can you imagine this, was like the sun shining in full strength. Completely different than some Jesus who comes to you while you're shaving. You see, this is the only, did you know this? This is the only description of Jesus in the entire New Testament. For centuries, artists have tried to paint what Jesus looked like. You've seen it hundreds of times. Right, about six feet, about 200 pounds, long brown hair, parted in the middle, blue eyes usually, um, full beard, long white robe, My question is, how do they know? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John never described Jesus, and so how do they really know what he looked like? Now Isaiah, by the way, 700 BC, he gives the Old Testament description of the the, the man Jesus who walked the earth Back in Isaiah 53, two, listen to this, quote, there was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. So there's Jesus, right? Fully God, yes, but his divinity was clothed in his humanity. It was all locked up in his humanity and he wouldn't show his divinity because it'd probably make everybody fall down. 
like in the Garden of, Geth- of, um, of Gethsemane when they came to arrest him. He clothed his divinity and his humanity, and he was just a normal-looking guy. And I wonder, is the reason why the gospel writers did not describe him, is the reason why because he was so unremarkable physically? Now, we don't know, but what we do know is that now that Jesus Christ is glorified, John describes him in detail, and it makes us want to worship him. Here's your next point. When you think of Christ, think of him the way John described him and worship him. I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you to almost memorize the description that John gives of Jesus Christ and go over it in your mind over and over and over again till you got it. Because if you'll do, you'll have a correct view of who Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, really is, and it'll lead you to worship him. This is what we need in our churches, ladies and gentlemen. We gotta stop worshiping ourselves. We gotta be, as I've said two months ago, stop being so anthropocentric, man-centered, and we gotta get our eyes back on the glorified Jesus Christ and begin to worship him in spirit and in truth. This is why we gather, this is the number one reason why we gather together on Sundays. It's to give honor and glory that's due to his name in a lost and dying world where the vast majority of people don't care. We're the remnant, we're the called out ones. And the Father's looking for people like that who will worship him in spirit and in truth. But we gotta know who the true God is. Well, he was just described in the second half of Revelation chapter one. And so who is the Lord? Verse 13 says, he's in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. What does that mean? That means that Jesus is in the midst of the churches. Right, it reminds us of this promise that I will never leave you nor forsake you. Did you know church is Jesus' idea? Did you know you can't really be a lifelong follower of Jesus Christ and not go to church? Boy, that's a controversial statement. Oh, come on, pastor, I can just stay home and watch it online. Or I can just download a message every once in a while. Or I can go out in the, I got this excuse the other day. Uh, I can go out in the woods and worship the Lord while I'm fishing. No, you can't. You're deceiving yourself. You cannot be a lifelong follower of Christ and skip out on church. Why? Because the church is Jesus' idea. He said, I will build whose church? He said, my church. It's not IBM. It's not Coca-Cola. It's not Starbucks. It's not any, it's, it's so much Uh, has so much more infinite worth than any of those man-made organizations that in the light of eternity really don't matter. What matters in the light of eternity is this church. Jesus, the Son of Man, walks in the midst of the churches. He walks around here and millions of other local churches around the world. His hair, John goes on to describe him, is like wool, like snow, showing us He has infinite wisdom. So when you have a hard time, before you go to your fellow man, go to the son of man. He's got infinite wisdom. His eyes are like a flame of fire showing us that he knows our every thought. Guys, I'm so discouraged, and some women too, but mainly guys, I'm so discouraged hearing the statistics 
of men in churches who are addicted to pornography. Breaks my heart. And it's the number one reason in America why men are, I was gonna say something that I shouldn't say, so I'll say something else. I was gonna say the number one reason why men are impotent in the church spiritually. It is the number one reason why men are impotent in this church spiritually is because in their hidden private life, they're addicted to pornography. So when they come to church, they feel so much guilt and shame, they feel like they can't lead. And guys, if that's you, and I don't know who I'm talking to, but if that is you, you gotta do whatever it takes starting this week to allow Jesus to break those chains of darkness from your life so you can be who God's called you to be. His eyes are like a flame of fire. He sees it. You can't hide it from him. Go to him. He's not gonna kick you and do this. As you've heard me say a hundred times, he's gonna embrace you, forgive you, and he'll, he alone has the power to break those chains. His feet are like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, showing he has every right to judge the churches. His voice is like the roar of many waters, showing us how powerful his word is. And did you notice in his right hand there's seven stars, showing us that he possesses the stars and he exercises authority over the stars. Okay, so what are the seven stars? Stars, okay? You, again, use the Bible to interpret the Bible. And so look at verse 20. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, Jesus said, the seven stars are the, what? Angels of the seven churches. Now, some people think these are actual angels that watch over the seven churches, but others have a different view. I have a different view. The word angel simply is translated in the Greek, a messenger, and so based on that definition, many people believe this, if you're taking notes, the seven stars refer to the seven messengers or pastors of the seven churches. This is what makes logical sense here, right? And so there's seven churches, you saw the map, in Asia Minor, John oversees, gives spiritual oversight to those seven churches, and so Jesus has a message for every church in Revelation 2 and 3. So Jesus gives the message to John, and then John gives it to the messengers or pastors, and then they read from a scroll aloud that message to the people, and in that way, those pastors are acting as messengers. If you still think they're actual angels, I would challenge your thinking, why in the world would Jesus give John, a human being, a message from Jesus to churches and tell John, now give this to an angel, and then the angel is gonna give it to the church. It doesn't make any sense. Plus, you'll find out when we go through the seven churches that um, for many of the churches, Jesus calls on both the angel and the congregants to repent. I don't know of any angels that need to repent. So an angel is just a messenger, and I believe as well as you know, most, most scholars that I read this week, just to make sure I wasn't teaching the wrong thing, would say these are the pastors of the seven churches. Returning to the description of the Lord, John said out of his mouth came this sharp, two-edged sword, teaching us that the word of Christ is, right, is, is powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword 
piercing even to the division of the soul and spirit. By the way, quick side note, we're not a dichotomy, we're a trichotomy because the word of God as is preached is like a, a sword that pierces dividing the soul and the spirit, two separate entities. So we are body, soul, and spirit to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow and is, is a, um, discerner, a discerner of the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The word of God coming out of Christ's mouth. This is why the word's got to be preached in churches. Not man's pep talks, but the word of God. And not only that, his face, I love this, was like the sun shining in full strength. My wife and I got off I-95 and we turned right on Midway and we're heading east and the, the sun's coming up like many of you, right? And what do you have to do? Put the visor down. It's like, ah, that's Jesus' face. Listen, not some hippie. Peace, bro. I'm your buddy. Come on. No. He's God Almighty. And his face shines like the sun in his full strength. And so for you early risers, you know that when the sun comes up in the morning and shines its light, what happens to the stars? They fade away. Now, Charles Spurgeon, I think this is like the best quote this guy ever did. And it's long, but I had to include it. He said, what do you see in Christ's right hand? Seven stars. Yet how insignificant they appear when you get a sight of his face. They are stars and there are seven of them, but who can see seven stars? Or for that matter, 70,000 stars when the sun shines in its strength. How sweet it is when the Lord himself is so present in a congregation that the preacher, Spurgeon believed the stars were preachers, that the preacher, whoever he may be, is altogether forgotten. I pray you, dear friends, when you go to a place of worship, always try to see the Lord's face rather than the stars in his hand. Look at the sun and you will forget about the stars. Man, that's good. For a pastor like me, I, I wanna say amen. Because I don't get to sit where you guys sit. I don't get to say it very often. So Charles Spurgeon, when you were alive, amen. Right? And so just like when the sun comes up in the morning and the stars fade from view, in the same way when the glorified Christ shines in a local church, everybody should be in captivated him, not some personality up on a stage. That's the truth. Anyway, what do we have in America today? We have celebrities and superstars. And where's Jesus? He's the son. We're just a little star. And we need to fade away. And we need to get a glimpse of the glory of Christ once again. So how did John respond when he saw the Lord? He responded like Isaiah and Ezekiel and Daniel. Look at verse 17. He said, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, what's the next two words? Some of you are afraid of Jesus. You need to stop being afraid of Jesus. Revere him, yes. Be in awe of him, yes. But don't 
be afraid of him. His blood has washed away your sins. Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died. That's why we don't have to be afraid. I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. I'm gonna come back to that. Write therefore the things that you have seen. Okay, here's that outline. We already covered it two weeks ago. The things you have seen, that's chapter one, the vision of the resurrected Christ. Those that are, that's chapters two and three, the seven letters to the seven churches. And those that are to take place after this, that's chapters four through 22, and it's absolutely in the future. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the messengers, that's what it says in the Greek, of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now, I want you to notice in verse 18 that Jesus has the keys of death and Hades. Keys denote authority. And so Jesus has authority over death. That's the destination of the physical human body. And he has the keys of Hades. That's the eternal destination of a lost human soul. Charles Ryrie in his study Bible said this, Hades is the place that temporarily holds the immaterial part of the unbeliever between death and the ultimate casting into the lake of fire. And so this is how it goes. When your body dies, it goes into the ground, but your spirit, that immortal part of you, goes to one of two places, heaven or Hades. And so that's how your body will remain and that's how your spirit will remain until the resurrection. The resurrection is in two general parts. We'll study all this later. First resurrection is before the millennial reign of Christ. Second resurrection is after the millennial reign of Christ. Okay, and so if you're part of the first resurrection, at that resurrection, your eternal soul, which is in the presence of the Lord, right? To be absent from the body is to be present with who? The Lord. Your eternal soul is reunited with your resurrected body, and then now you are gonna live and reign with him for a thousand years and forevermore. But if you're part of the second resurrection, then your soul, which is in hell, the rich man in hell lifted up his eyes being in torments, while his body was in the ground, his soul was a conscious and alive. Your soul is reunited with your resurrected body and that whole package is thrown into the lake of fire. Jesus said, fear not man who can destroy your body. Fear God who can destroy both body and soul in hell. And John will write in John chapter 20, here's your last verse. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Reality check. What resurrection are you gonna go in? That's the question. Well, how many times do I hear this? Pastor, you know, I went to church my whole life. So? My car goes to church, it's not saved. 
You see, there was a time when I liked my wife, and there was a time when I loved my wife. But you know, my wife and I didn't get together until I said, will you marry me? And she said, yeah, and then we committed our lives together. Have you committed your life to Christ, or do you just like him, or do you just love him? Will you commit to him? One of the greatest gifts God can give his children is the assurance of their salvation. If you're not sure where you stand with God, we want to help. Visit our website at www.calvarypsl.com. Click on Home, then Knowing Christ.